This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. This episode, I'm speaking to Dr. William Dunn from University College London about observing the solar system in X-ray and searching for life on the outer planets. Hi, I'm Dr. William Dunn. I'm an astrophysicist at uh, University College London and the Mullet Space Science Laboratory, um, and I X-ray planets. Yes, now... That's one of the things we're going to be talking about today, isn't it? Um, X-rays and X-ray and astronomy and observing the universe and X-rays. So I thought it would be worth kicking off the podcast with with that with that that notion. Why is it that astronomers observe the universe in X-ray? What what do they get from X-ray that they don't get from normal or you know optical light? Sure. So so X-rays tell you about the most energetic and grandest scales in the universe. So. Typically, X-ray astronomy studies things like black holes and neutron stars and the gas that flows between galaxies and galaxy clusters. So these unimaginably large and unimaginably energetic scales. Um, But we can also use them to study planets. Uh, And they tell us lots of interesting things about planets that other wave bands just can't tell us. So it's it's almost like um, they can sort of see what would otherwise be invisible? Yeah, absolutely. So they tell us about the, the composition of things. They tell us about... Um, plasma hot gas that flows between things but but yes you're right things that you couldn't see you can't see with your eyes um, and things that you can't see in the visible light or the ultraviolet or infrared or radio or all of those other wave bands that give us different clues uh, about the various different processes that govern the universe yeah i think um most of our listeners will probably be aware of you know sort of grand scale observatories perhaps like you know like the uh, chandra x-ray observatory that's sort of you know, it, it's observing galaxy clusters and things like that um, on um, in, in X-ray. But your X-ray observations are a little little closer to home, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. So we we take uh, we take the Chandra X-ray Observatory, for instance, the, the flagship NASA X-ray Observatory. Um, but rather than pointing it at black holes in the center of galaxies or exploding stars or things called cataclysmic variables, which are neutron stars colliding with other neutron stars with black holes and things like that. Instead of those things, we point them at planets. So we point them at Jupiter or Saturn or Uranus or Mars or Venus, and we see what's going on at these places that are a little closer to time. Yeah, and your uh, focus you, you, your focus of your work does does focus on the, on, on the outer planets. I, I was wondering, um, why, do you, why do you focus so much on, on the gas giants and, and the ice giants? Why Why not focus on sort of... A planet like Mars, for example, or something. Where, where did your interest in those in those other planets come from? So, X rays give us this diverse treasure trove of different insights into planetary systems. Maybe I'll split the answer up into into two separate sections. So, so firstly, they tell us about the composition and the formation and the potential for 
and the potential for life at some of these places. Um, and they do this because, in fact, back here on back here on Earth, uh, we use X-rays and we use X-ray fluorescence specifically in lots of different everyday processes, from checking how much chlorine or fluorine there is in your toothpaste, uh, and particularly on your food, right? You don't want to be consuming too much of that, to forgeries in art and to check whether the, the paint in some piece of art from the 1800s or the 1700s is the right composition that it should have been if it was painted at that time, to jewelers who will check whether things are made of gold or silver or, or platinum. Um, so X-rays give us these uniquely give us these insights into the elemental composition of things. They tell us how much oxygen there is, how much carbon there is, how much iron there is in something. And so for planetary systems, that's really useful, right? You want to know how it formed, what it's made of, and and what elements exist there that could potentially support life. And so for planetary studies in the inner solar system, this has been used lots. Uh, At Mercury, for instance, we've got the... uh, We've got Bepi Colombo on its way to Mercury right now, and it's carrying an extra instrument that will study the composition of the surface of Mercury. And for the outer planets, I think this is super exciting for things like the moons. So we know that Jupiter has these really exciting moons, places like Europa. And Europa has a, a surface covered in a thick layer of ice, but below that ice we think there's a water ocean that spans the entire moon, like a global ocean, with more water in it than is in all of the oceans on Earth. So... One of the places, if, if there is life in our solar system, one of the places it could potentially exist is in some of these oceans on the moons of the outer planets. So places like Europa and Ganymede and Enceladus, all of these exciting icy moons with oceans below the surface. But really to know what chemistry is available for that life, or potentially even to find the life itself, you need to know what's in that water and what's in the surface and what could life potentially be thriving off. And so to do that, we need to study the chemical composition of these places And then to do that, x-rays are a fantastic instrument. They uniquely give us these fingerprint signatures that say, oh, there's this much oxygen here, there's this much potassium, there's this much chlorine. And so in turn, that tells us the nature of the salts in the oceans. Are they kind of like our sodium salts on Earth? Um, Do we have sodium salty oceans on these moons? Or are they slightly different oceans? Are they chlorine-based or or potassium-based salts? And in turn, that has implications for what sorts of life could exist there, uh, so, so I think that's one of the really exciting uses for the X-rays for the outer planets to study these moons and to work out well, what are the conditions like there? What chemistry is available there, and could it support life? So, to, I said I'd split this into into two. So, so part one is how do places form? What are they made of? And could they support life? That that I think is a really powerful and valuable use of X-ray astronomy. The second is that um, you can study this stuff called plasma. So, in school, typically you'll learn about three forms of matter. You'll learn about solid, liquid, and gas. But actually, the most prevalent form of matter, of known matter in the universe, is in the plasma state. Uh, And so 99% of the universe is plasma. And so really, if we're going to understand all of these processes that govern the universe and govern this plasma, we need to to study the processes and dynamics that are happening in plasma and how they control particles and how particles and energy flows across this plasma. And, and x-rays are also really good for that. They're good for that for mul- in, in multiple ways. So they let us directly image this plasma. They show us precisely what's going on in it, these, these regions. They show us both, for instance, these intense regions called radiation belts. So we know that Earth has radiation belts, Jupiter has radiation belts, Saturn has radiation belts, Uranus has radiation belts, Neptune has, ra- has radiation belts. It seems like it's almost a universal... Um, property of magnetized planets, that they have these intense regions called radiation belts. 
So radiation belts can have particles that are up to ultra-relativistic energies. They're crazy energetic, and if you put a human in that environment, it would be really, really bad for them. But we know that the plasma that occupies these regions around planets doesn't start at ultra-relativistic energies. It starts kind of at, at very tepid and calm energies, EV energies. But somehow processes in plasma physics are able to take particles that are very chilled out and not really doing anything particularly exciting and accelerate them all the way up to these ultra-relativistic energies. Um, and so X-rays let us image these regions and try to work out, well, how, how is the universe generating these crazy energies and able to accelerate particles to them? They also, they also tell us about the boundaries between different regions. So um, there's this amazing space mission about to launch in a couple of years' time called SMILE. And SMILE will use X-rays to study the boundary between the Earth and the solar wind, this, this stream of particles that comes out of the sun. And so it will actually directly image that boundary for the first time. We've never imaged this magnetosphere as a whole, this region around Earth as a whole. It will take us these, these images of it and it will show us, well, how do, for instance, giant storms on the sun, how do they impact the whole of Earth's magnetosphere? How do they nudge it? How do they squash it really, really tightly? What processes are happening there? So I think there's this huge array of possible uses for X-ray astronomy for, for planetary systems. And really it's been underutilized for decades now. And so what I think is really exciting about the coming decades is we're really going to start to utilize it to study the composition, the formation of these bodies, their potential for life, and also fundamental plasma physics that governs the entire universe and how those processes work and how, and therefore, because we can't visit all of these other places across the cosmos where we, where these processes happen, but we can study them in our own solar system, how the universe as a whole might be behaving and the dynamics that might govern it. So do you think that, um, X-ray astronomy so far has, has sort of been looking too far beyond our solar system and we, we, we've sort of neglected to, to, to use this, um, this tool to, to study our, our, our own cosmic backyard? Possibly. I think, I mean, I think naturally X-rays give us these amazing insights into these other systems um, and uniquely give us insights into active galactic, galactic nuclei and the, these black holes in the centre of galaxies and things like that. Yeah, to some extent, I do think it, it was it was neglected for solar system studies. There have been some amazing studies within the solar system, but I think largely it has been underutilized as wave band, and there's lots of potential uh, for things that we just can't tell with other wave bands, or for it to complement other wave bands. So, for instance, infrared studies of the moons tell us the molecular composition. They will tell us um, what molecules exist in the surface of the moons, and therefore what molecules could be in the subsurface ocean. But the problem is that the resolution on those observations is often not good enough to, for instance, distinguish potassium salts from chlorine salts from sodium salts. And this is where X-rays can be hugely valuable and complementary to all the, other, all the other studies from other wave bands, in that they could tell us precisely, well, there's this much potassium or there's this much chlorine, and therefore the salts that you're looking at are these types of salts. I think those icy moons with subsurface oceans that you mentioned, like you know Europa and Enceladus, um, I think um, to the layperson who, who, isn't, a, who isn't a planetary scientist, they do still ultimately look like completely barren in inhospitable worlds, but obviously, as a planetary scientist, you don't you don't look at it that way. So, I was I was wanting to gauge your sort of ju just how interesting do, do you find these moons, and just just how excited are you about exploring them? Do do you really think that if if there is you know microbial life in the solar system, that that's where we'll find it? I think David Attenborough says right that life finds a way, and everywhere on Earth that you 
look at areas of liquid water, we find evidence of life. I think the big question here is, is there something unique and fundamentally different about Earth and that enables us to be so privileged that life only formed here? Or is life widespread, widespread and prevalent across, across the universe? And I think the icy moons and Mars as well provide really the, the cornerstones of understanding, well, how prevalent is life? Do you just need liquid water, the right chemistry, and, and some source of energy like, uh, like vents at the bottom of the oceans in order to drive the existence of life and in, in order for it to form? Or are there other things that we're missing? We really, there's lots of things in, in the biology, and I'm stepping outside of my comfort zone here, but there's lots of things in the biology that we don't understand, the, that very first formation of, of microbial life. Like how, how did it go from replicating molecules to, to tiny single cellular beings that, that replicate themselves? And then beyond that, how do, there's also a huge unknown in that there was this billion-year gap between the existence of, of single-cell organisms and multi-cell life. And so how does that, also, that step also happen? And I don't think we, we fully understand how that happened here on Earth to begin with. And whether that's a big blocker as well at these at these other places, so I, I think it's just as exciting finding life and not finding life are just as exciting possibilities. That if we don't find life, it means that there is something fundamentally different about Earth, and and that gives us this position of privilege in the universe where where we get to exist where life didn't wasn't able to exist, for instance, on Mars or on or in the oceans on the icy moons. Uh, and I think that's the interesting question here and so and so coming back to how hospitable it is i think on earth we know of all of these different organisms these extremophiles where you look at the most extreme environments on the planet and you still find that life has has found a way to exist in those places and so we have these very extreme environments at the outer planets and and so possibly life found a way to exist there i think i think i should clarify here though as well that i don't mean on the surfaces of the icy moons and probably and not on the surface of mars as well for places like europa the environment it's it's bathed in this very very dangerous radiation it's it's not possible for life to exist in in those conditions uh, similarly for the surface of mars it's going to be bathed in ultraviolet radiation that's going to do terrible things to any life that would that would be present there um, but probably possibly in the subsurface, there might be the potential for, for things to exist there. What about um, sort of look, looking a bit further out um, to the uh, ice giants, Uranus and Neptune? I mean, la- last sort of briefly flown by, by Voyager 2, you know, do, do, you, think, do you think we're overdue, overdue missions out to Uranus, Uranus and Neptune? I'm so, so excited by the NASA decadal. So the NASA decadal study, um, this happens every 10 years and, and it lays out the priorities for NASA for the next decade. And the thing that came top this, this time around was a mission to the ice giants. So when I say the ice giants, I mean Uranus and Neptune. These are these worlds at the frozen frontier where we have these momentary flybys by the Voyager spacecraft and otherwise we have such limited knowledge of these places, but they're they're crazy weird places. So... Uranus, for instance, it, it basically rolls through the solar system on its side. It has it and, bo- and Neptune both have magnetic fields that are offset from the center of the planet. That's crazy in itself. I don't understand how that happens. And that creates this whole system around them of, of a magnetosphere, this environment around them that's also offset from the planet's center, tilted at a crazy direction to the planet's rotation. And so the whole thing is just whipping and spiraling through space. And then they have this, Uranus has this incredible system of moons. 
Um, and, and potentially, yes, we, I mean, we just don't know whether they could also have subsurface oceans, right? The, it seems like from the very primitive studies that we've been able to do with this very, very limited data set from Voyager, that they could potentially have oceans. And there could be a system of five moons at Uranus that, that have oceans below the surface. Um, it's it's going to be amazing to send a spacecraft to those to those planets and actually kind of start to probe these worlds. And And from a kind of planetary formation or cosmological context we know from exoplanet studies that ice giants are a really common output from planetary formation there seems to be lots and lots of ice giants across the universe and yet the two that are in our astronomical backyard we've we've barely visited um so i think lots of exciting things to come from the ice giants and i'm really excited for for this dedicated uranus mission and and what it will discover and yeah and all of the ways that it will reframe our understanding of the universe. Are you are you excited about the prospect of some of those missions to Uranus and Neptune um, in terms of their the the possibility for X ray imaging and, and observing um, and and sort of what you could do with with X ray observations of of those planets and their moons, or do you do you know whether or not that that is actually Part of some of the proposed missions, the you know, the, uh, uh, a view to, to taking good um, X-ray data out there. So I, I think they've they've not been fully defined yet. So I, I think I think an X-ray instrument would be phenomenal on those missions. So w- earlier I talked about how uh, Earth X-ray instruments are going to let us image the magnetopause, this boundary between the Earth's magnetosphere and the solar wind, and that tells us about how different regions interact throughout all of space. One of the fundamental questions for a Uranus or a Neptune mission is, well, how does this crazy tilted magnetosphere that's offset from the center of the system, how is that interacting with uh, with the solar wind and the, and the particles around it? And I think a, an extra instrument would be probably the only way to image that magnetosphere and fully understand the global processes that, that govern that interaction between Uranus's magnetosphere in the solar wind, and and again, like we've said for the uh, for the icy moons of of Jupiter or for Saturn, um, taking X-ray fluorescence images to study the composition of the moons of of Uranus and the rings of Uranus and that whole dusty system would be really fundamental to understanding how did how did those moons form, what are they made of, and and potentially if they have subsurface oceans, what what is the chemistry that's available for life in those subsurface oceans? So yeah, I think it would be a phenomenal mission to take um, an X-ray instrument. So, so actually, an X-ray instrument has has never visited the outer planets, and this lar- this is largely because it's only been in the last decade that we've been able to miniaturize these instruments and harden the detectors so that they could fly to the outer planets and they'd be quite lightweight. Um, so, I, I think the opportunity has really just arisen for the, for this possibility, but it's a really exciting possibility with with lots of possible possible options for for new scientific discoveries and and to address the fundamental science questions for the ice giants i'm just thinking now uh, uh, also about um pluto at uh, new horizons um and then it's a uh, kuiper belt flyby um if we sent a uh, an x-ray observatory out to um uranus and neptune would would you like to see something like that maybe like a, a flyby of pluto and another kuiper belt object would would there be sort of um benefits in, in X-ray studies of, of Kuiper Belt objects, for example? Yes. So, so okay, so for the ice giants, I think 
I think an orbiter is essential. There's so much that we don't know about them. The system's so rich with uh, with a ring system, with all of these incredible moons. Um, so Neptune has the moon Triton that it captured from the Kuiper Belt, and that seems to have plumes of, of nitrogen that it throws out into the space environment around Neptune. For those worlds, I think an orbiter is essential and, and not just a mission that flies past. There's too, there's too much we need to know that we wouldn't be able to get to know with a momentary flyby. Uh, with the Kuiper Belt, I think x-rays would be really valuable for telling you about the interaction between these places, for instance, Pluto Pluto and the solar wind or Charon and the solar wind, um, and, and for telling you about the surface composition and, and what. And if they did have subsurface oceans, like there's some suggestion that Pluto could have a subsurface ocean, what what is the potential chemistry that's available there as well? Yeah, it's sort of interesting that um, so far um, we've mostly been talking about um, the search for life and then we've spoken about um, the um, study of magnetospheres. Do those uh, two two branches of your study overlap in any way? Can can the study of magnetospheres um, in the outer planets or in the solar system tell us anything about um, the prospect for finding finding life in, in our solar system? I mean, I think in a broader context, it's essential. It's essential for exoplanet systems because we know that the solar wind, the, all these particles that stream out of the sun, they can strip atmospheres from planets. We see this happening at Venus and we see it happening at Mars where they don't have strong internally driven magnetospheres and they don't have a, a strong magnetic field. They just have kind of leftover crustal magnetic fields. And so they don't have this um, this force field, this protective bubble around them that, that protects the atmosphere from the solar wind and all of the, the this atmospheric stripping that the solar wind does. And so we think, for instance, Mars once had a very thick atmosphere and the, and the surface conditions there were very much like Earth. Uh, it was about the right temperature and it, and it had liquid water existing on the surface. Um, and we know that then it lost its magnetic field and at the point where it lost its magnetic field, the solar wind no longer had a barrier that stopped it accessing the atmosphere and stopped it tearing off the atmosphere. And so Mars's atmosphere has gradually been torn away by the solar wind over, over billions of years now. So from, from the context of, of exoplanets and understanding these, the, the potential for them to support life, knowing whether there's a magnetosphere there that can protect the atmosphere and, and can keep a, a thick and, and habitable atmosphere there, I think is essential. So the, sig- the signature of these magnetospheres is typically um, the northern lights of planets. The northern lights act as this, this video that shows us whatever's going on in the magnetosphere. And I probably should have mentioned this earlier, but x-rays are also a really good way of studying the northern lights of other planets. They, te- they tell us about the flow of particles in, the, in those magnetospheres um, and the fundamental processes that are governing those magnetospheres. And they, t- and they tell us also that there is a strong magnetic field there that's protecting the atmosphere. So I think in an in a even broader context, understanding whether magnetospheres exist at planets at all is going to be essential for us pinning down from these thousands and thousands of exoplanets we've found, thousands of planets orbiting other stars, to narrow those down to a set of planets that we think could be habitable and are worth, worthy of really detailed observations to study for potential thing, for things like potential biosignatures that indicate that there's life or there. Um, or that there could be potential civilizations on them. Um, but to narrow down from the thousands of exoplanets we've found to, to the handful that we can study in detail 
one aspect of that will be knowing do these places have magnetospheres do they have strong magnetic fields that can protect the atmosphere from all of the dangerous stuff that a star can do to a planet's atmosphere awesome i always think it's it's, it's really interesting thinking about these these planetary missions because they're they're sort of generations in 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 the planning aren't they and they, they sort of take take decades to plan and, and to actually get going and that sort of um <clears throat> that sort of brings us on to one of the other things i was, I was going to um Ask, ask you to tell us about today, which is the uh, Orbits program that, that you're involved in. Um, I was just wondering um, if you could tell us a bit about that and how you you sort of, you know, <laughs> hope hope to inspire those sort of future, future generations of uh, planetary scientists and astronomers. Yeah, so I, I think in the UK we have some really chronic issues with um, with science as a whole. It's we have chronic diversity issues. So for instance, from um, sixth form onwards, so after school students are 16, we see this, this drop from 50% of students being girls to only 20% of students being girls. We also see that you're only a third of students studying A-level physics uh, come from low-income backgrounds versus, as in, you're two-thirds less likely to study A-level physics if you're from a low-income background than you, than you are if you're from uh, a more well-off background. So we, and, and these diversity issues extend to ethnicity, they extend to um, special educational needs. And, and, and so really the, the problem is that the scientific community doesn't accurately represent the demographics across society. And, and I think that's a problem that we have to look to try to solve. So we have these this array of of problems that are systemic problems across across UK society in in physics and and so Orbits looks to try to address this and it looks to try to address this by um, by pairing up active scientific researchers with groups of school students for a long term engagement. So this isn't uh, researchers dropping into the school for a one off talk and then vanishing and never being seen again. It's it's them meeting with the school students weekly or fortnightly for up to a year. And they'll work with the school students on a research project. And really that tries to transition so that the school students gain ownership and they gain leadership of that research project and they decide the direction that it takes. Um, and, so, and so what we see from this is we see some of our schools report, for instance, 100% increases in the number of girls taking A-level physics if they do this project at GCSE. Um, we see dramatic increases in the number of students from low-income backgrounds who go on to take A-level physics and go on to do physics at university. I, I should clarify here, though, that this... The program isn't about advertising physics. It, we're, not, we're not some kind of sales pitch for physics. It's just about making school students who otherwise wouldn't get these opportunities aware that these are pathways that exist and that they could potentially take if they wanted to. And making sure that they're aware that this is something that they can do. And, and ensuring that we build their confidence both in their ability to see that, that people like them do these subjects, but also in their ability to see that they can actually do physics. Um, and so... So they're the goals for orbits that we we pair researchers with schools and we do it to try to make sure that science is more equitable and, and more school students from underrepresented groups get get opportunities to see physics and do physics um, and and maybe potentially see themselves as physicists. Yeah, it sounds like um, <clears throat> a bit like um, a sort of citizen science project. So are 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 the kids actually working on uh, you know actual data and and, and helping make discoveries? Oh, absolutely. So, so in the last uh, four years, we've had more than two hundred school students become published authors on on scientific publications, and and these span a, 
an array of different research disciplines. Um, so, uh, in fact, in fact, yesterday, um, one of my colleagues at UCL, Maria, uh, she's been working with Hyams Park School, which is a, a school in a state school in North London, um, and they submitted a paper about supernovae. And they've been studying two different supernovae, and they found that they're actually quite different from the archetypal supernova. Um, we've had students at Hammersmith Academy. Um, they discovered that the, the same molecules that, that you would drink in coffee, they, they're born at the same time as stars are born. Um, we have students at some academies in Nottingham who've discovered really weird, strange things about the winds that come from black holes by looking at data from the XMM-Newton um, Space Telescope. We have schools in southwest London uh, who are currently studying comets and have discovered lots of crazy new things about the tails of comets. Um, students in, in Newcastle who are looking at solar observations at the moment, and last year they were using artificial intelligence to study um, the space environment around the Earth, uh, and they discovered something crazy called the tearing instability um, in, in the terrestrial magnetosphere, so that's a paper that's currently uh, in submission had students work on modeling neutron stars um, to see how different neutron stars interact. Students uh, have these phenomenal colleagues, uh, Abby Bray and, and Connie Hoffman, who've, who were working with um, Newham Collegiate Sixth Form, and, and there they were looking at orbiting electrons and, and how different lasers might change the orbits of electrons. Um, so everything from the largest scales imaginable in the universe to the smallest scales. Um, and, and in fact, I, I guess what, what I think is kind of important about this is sometimes it doesn't work, right? Research isn't um, an ideal kind of conveyor belt to results. So uh, we had a couple of schools, um, London Academy of Excellence and in Stratford and, and Preston Manor, who actually, they were doing some exoplanet studies with the amazing Fawkes Telescope Network um, and with some of my colleagues who work on the aerial mission. And they were looking at where we expected there to be a planet. And what, what absolutely ruined their research project is where other people previously had said, oh, we've discovered a planet, it orbits the star this often. They actually just weren't able to find it. And they, it wasn't that they weren't able to find it because they weren't looking carefully enough. It's because the planet wasn't actually there. So, so we have this full range of different research topics that different schools do. And I guess the different, the different thing from citizen science is that you pair them with a role model. The, the, the thing that we hear from the teachers is that this has an incredibly humanizing impact on the science for them. They get to know this person as a human being. They get to realize, critically, they get to realize that they're not Einsteins, that we're, we as scientists don't have some unattainable, innate level of intellect that no one else can, can hope for. We're, we're humans and we're fallible and we make mistakes. And by having these repeated interventions and repeated meetings with, with the researcher, they get to realize that we are fallible. And I think that's really important for shifting the perception of who can be a scientist. Um, I guess I should also shout out my group. Uh, so I had some amazing students last year uh, who looked at Jupiter's aurora. They looked at the ultraviolet aurora from Jupiter and also the X-ray aurora from Jupiter. And they discovered lots of crazy things in the Northern Lights from Jupiter. Um, particularly I had a student called Daisy and she was so hardworking and discovered so many things that I think we're going to be writing multiple papers for the rest of this year about all the crazy things that she found. Another student called Kirill, who um, maybe we had a big press release last year, some people might have seen it, where we discovered x-rays from Uranus, and he produced some of the images of, of Uranus with the x-rays overlaid on top of infrared images uh, to indicate to, to people where we were seeing the x-rays coming from. Um, so, yeah, so um, all these amazing things that school students can do and can accomplish and can contribute to research. Um, I think often it's um, their possible contributions are maybe maligned, and and what we're finding is actually 
school students have a lot to offer to to humanity's knowledge base as a whole um, and can discover all of these crazy things that are happening in the universe. Absolutely. And, you know, I just to come back to sort of what I was saying about, um, you know, the missions and, and uh, projects, you know, especially, you know, um, planetary missions, you know, they, they take time even just to get going, let alone to actually launch and to uh, arrive at, you know, a planet, you know, as far away as Uranus or Neptune. So it's sort of quite nice to think that maybe <clears throat> some of the students that you've been working with, they might end up, you know, doing their PhDs on, you know, the, the whatever planetary mission gets to Neptune or, you know, that will end up being their their career, you know, like they'll spend 20, 20 or 30 years looking through the data, you know, and, and it all started, you know, um, with a with a sort of um, with a nice uh, you know citizen science project at school, I, th- I think that's totally true. And in fact, I think if if we do discover life elsewhere in the universe, it will be people who are in school right now who will be the ones discovering it. Because the way that the technology is developing, it will probably take us twenty years maybe to get to the point where we can actually truly deep dive into whether th- these places do support life and. And I think if there is life in the solar system or beyond the solar system at exoplanets, it will be someone who's in school right now who will who will be the first first human being to ever discover life elsewhere. Hmm. Fantastic! That's a that's a nice thought to uh, to end on. Um, so yeah, uh, well, just want to say thanks for coming on the podcast and sharing your expertise with us. And yeah, hope hope to speak to you again soon. And uh, good, good luck with all your future research. No problem at all, Ian. Thanks so much for having me. Um, and. Yeah, it was, it was an honour speaker. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy Podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to Acast, iTunes or Spotify.